Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thanks, John. Well, good morning, everybody. We're, uh, we're continuing forward today uh, with, with our uh, brief series that we're calling Doubting Christianity, and we're exploring different uh, questions and, and hang-ups that uh, different people, maybe even ourselves, might have with, with the claims of Christianity. And today's uh, rhetorical question that we're going to explore is, shouldn't everyone be able to define truth for themselves? And uh, in 2016, as they do every year, Oxford Dictionary uh, came out with their word of the year. And the word of the year was post-truth. And post-truth is defined as the notion that objective facts are now less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And so this, this idea that um, if something is true, then the opposite has to be false, uh, that idea still holds uh, for math, uh, for instance, like two plus two um, nobody who knows math is going to say 2 plus 2 equals 7 or 56 or 101. You're going to say 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that rules out every other numerical option for the answer to that question. Uh, the idea, if something is true, then the opposite must be false also applies uh, in the realm of science. Uh, whether or not you believe in the law of gravity, the law of gravity is true, and it's true for everybody. And if you, if you ignore it, uh, you're probably going to eventually agree with the law of gravity. History as well. Uh, if George Washington did not exist, that means that, there, that, that George Washington couldn't have existed, and vice versa. If he did exist, then he, it means that he can't not have existed. And so, so this idea that if something is true, the opposite is, is false, for, for all of us, it still holds true in areas like math and science and history, but somehow it doesn't hold true for many of us in areas like ideology, ethics, or religion, which puts Christianity as well as other major world religions like Judaism and Islam, for example, on a collision course with, with the emerging popular view that everybody has a right to determine what's true for them uh, and, and so on. And uh, you may have heard it said in conversations 
along these lines. Um, it's true for you, okay, fine. You know, your, your belief system, true for you, good for you. But if you say that your belief about truth, your belief system is true for everybody, and that it applies to every person, every culture, every generation, then that makes you arrogant, it makes you bigoted, it makes you hateful. Uh, you ever heard any conversation like that? Um, those sorts of things are being said more and more about religions and faiths that hold to this idea that there are absolute truths to which everybody must answer. And so, uh, there's this bumper sticker that says that my God is too big for just one religion. Uh, it, it brings to mind a, a parable that uh, comes to us from Hinduism. Now, now, Hinduism does embrace this notion of everybody being able to determine what's true for them, and, you know, that all truth claims are, are essentially equally valid. You just have to decide what your path is. And so, there's this parable from Hinduism uh, that pictures an elephant, and then around that elephant you have uh, several blind men, and all of them are touching the elephant uh, at some place. And uh, one blind man is touching the elephant on the trunk, and, and he says it feels like, a lot like a snake. And then another uh, blind man is touching the elephant on the ear, and he says it feels like a fan. And then another one on the leg, and he says it feels like a tree. And another one on the side of the elephant says it feels like a wall. Another one's hand is touching the tail, says it feels like a rope. And then another one's touching a tusk and says it feels like a spear. And the thinking goes that everybody has a bit of the truth, but not anyone has all of the truth. And so, so if you take the truth that this person has or this person has, or the truth that this religion or belief system or philosophy has, and that this one has, and that this philosophy or religion has, and you put them all together, then you get the truth. But, 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 it, but, it, but it happens through consensus. It happens through um, you know, everybody coming together with all their different and sometimes divergent viewpoints, putting them together, and then you get truth by consensus. And so, what Paul is saying here in Galatians is that uh, truth by consensus, truth determined by popular opinion and majority vote and consensus, he uses a word, hypocrisy for that. He, he confronts it. He uses another word, false, for that point of view, that truth is determined by popular opinion and so on. And so, so first, verse 4, he actually uses the word false to, to describe certain religious teachers to suggest that there is such a thing as falsehood. And uh, he also, in verse 14, uh, says that Peter was at a certain point, not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. Not a gospel, not Peter's gospel, but the gospel. The one and only truth. And, and, and so, what he's suggesting is that there's such a thing as a truth that is not just my truth or your truth, but it's a truth that applies to everybody. And so, so what I want to do is, is, is to, to, to examine today the fairly controversial, the increasingly controversial uh, claim from Christianity that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Uh, the late Francis Schaeffer, philosopher and pastor, 
called it true truth. That's true for all people, all cultures, uh, and all situations. And so, two, two points for you today. I know it's, you know, graduation week for a lot of people, so I'm just not going to give you anything more to cram into your head for exams. Just, just two points. Everyone believes in absolute truth. Everybody, even people who say they don't believe in absolute truth, believe in absolute truth. And then uh, I'll just articulate a few reasons why Christians believe that Jesus is the truth. And so, uh, everyone believes in absolute truth. In other words, everyone is a fundamentalist, including you. Yes, you are. Everyone is a fundamentalist because everybody has a set of fundamentals around which he or she organizes worldview. And the question is not whether or not we are fundamentalists. The question is whose fundamentals are true, whose fundamentals are beautiful and life-giving. And so, um, the presenting issue here for the writing of the letter to the Galatians is what is described as an infiltration into the early church, the early body of believers in Jesus Christ. And the infiltration was by uh, a group of leaders that, that Paul identifies as the circumcision party, the circumcision party. And it's not like a fun party. It's, it's like party spirit, right? Us and them. And uh, the circumcision party, their, their fundamentals were these. You have to believe in Jesus to be part of God's family, but you also have to continue to keep all of the laws of Moses. That, that includes the moral law like the Ten Commandments, and it also includes uh, the, the, the civil laws, you know, that government should be organized around, and also the ceremonial laws like, like sacrifices and rituals and, and circumcision and things of that sort. So, so, you've got to keep the law of Moses and believe in Christ, and, and, and God will accept you. God will accept you through your faith and through the good things that you do and through, through your compliance to Jewish ways and to Moses' ways. In other words, you have to have faith in Jesus and be culturally, politically, socially, practically Jewish, and, and you have to essentially relinquish your individuality. You have to relinquish the culture that you came from and become like us. And if you do that, you're in. If you don't do that, you're out. And, and it says that the cultural pressure was so heavy that even Peter, one of the disciples, and Barnabas, who's, who's known for his way of encouraging people and drawing people in, they are boxing people out, namely the Gentiles who, who are not becoming culturally Jewish and yet have been accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And so, there's this thing that you've probably read about somewhere along the way in the history books and in your studies, maybe when you were a student, uh, called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Okay, this was sort of a, a, a counterfeit, uh, fake, uh, disingenuous peace that, that Roman government authorities in the first century offered to citizens. And it went like this, anyone can be a citizen in good standing in Rome as long as you relinquish everything about yourself that contradicts the views, the philosophies, the politics of the Roman state. 
There is no such thing as free speech unless you're saying things that Rome would agree with. There's no such thing as that. As long as you comply, as long as you relinquish your individuality, as long as you relinquish your own culture, we welcome people from all cultures, all parts of the world, but you have to relinquish what you bring here in order to be part of us, otherwise we'll cut your head off. That was the way it worked, especially if you declare audacious things like Jesus is Lord. Remember that place in Romans where it says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, in Romans, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that was a a, a politically defiant statement because every citizen in Rome knew that Caesar and Caesar alone was Lord and, and, and to declare otherwise was to put your own life at risk and to become an enemy of the state, treasonist. You have to become compliant to Roman values, pay heavy Roman taxes to the Roman state, worship the Roman emperor and then you have peace. You get to enjoy the peace of Rome. The circumcision party was behaving in similar ways inside the church. We have our ways, and you have to abide by them. You have to embrace the majority groupthink. You, You have to embrace uh, you know, according to the circumcision party, our circumcision practices, you have to embrace our politics, our dietary laws, uh, the way that we, you know, look at money and, and things and, and family systems and structures. Like, you have to abide by our calendars and our schedules, and then you can be, ex- oh yeah, faith in Christ, yes, but you've got to do all these other things too in order to be accepted and embraced in the community. In other words, if you're a Gentile, you have to become less of a Gentile and more of a Jew in order to belong. But Jesus comes in, and the gospel comes in as a religion, as a faith for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Jesus' goal was never to turn Gentiles into Jews, even though Jesus was a Jew and came from the Jews. Jesus' goal was never to turn Gentiles into Jews, but to turn Gentiles into better Gentiles and Africans into better Africans, and people of color into better people of color, and, 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 and Caucasians into better Caucasians, and Republicans into better Republicans, and Democrats into better Democrats, and so on. Africans into better Africans, Europeans into better Europeans, Romans into better Romans, and Jews into better Jews. See, he, he doesn't want, he wants unity. He doesn't want uniformity. Uniformity is boring. Like he's got this whole human community that he's created with all of these human cultures, and he's bringing them all together under a roof where they can all not only get along and tolerate each other, because tolerance is just thinly veiled hatred. It's just a way to despise somebody to put, put up with them. No, to love each other and become as family to one another. There's no other organization, there's no other institution, no other philosophy, no other religion that has brought this many cultures together under one roof and said, hold on to your cultural identity and agree on Jesus and on the truth. Christians can be susceptible of this kind of circumcision party behavior these days. You know, Barna just recently came out with a a, a study, another study that says that basically no, most non-Christians, both, most people who don't identify as followers of Jesus are very open these days to talking about faith. That's really good news if you're a Christian who likes to share your faith. The bad news is that most non-Christians are also saying that the hardest people to talk to about faith 
as Christians. Because according to most non-Christians who took this survey, the Christians that they've encountered around these kinds of conversations are strident, rigid, and overly political. You know, the younger generations, you know, all these stories about how younger generations are, are leaving the churches. Um, it's not entirely true, but it is in certain segments of, of, of Western culture. And in those segments of Western culture where young people are saying, I don't want anything to do with the faith of my parents, the number one reason why is that, that, that my parents' faith over-identifies with a certain political platform and persuasion conflating faith and politics, and therefore excluding, just as Peter and Barnabas and the circumcision party did. This is what a fundamentalist is in the bad sense of the word, Luke 18, 9, confident in your own righteousness and looking down on other people with contempt. Confident that you're right and looking down on people who don't agree with you. That's the worst kind of fundamentalists. And, and by the way, the secular liberals are not off the hook on this either. You know, it's the secular liberals' version of, of sort of the modern Roman peace, where we want, we're all, embrace, all embracing, everybody's included. You know, Nicholas Kristof, as a liberal, as a secular man, as an agnostic, and the New York Times wrote an essay recently about the hypocrisy of college education culture. The title of the essay is The Dangers of Echo Chambers on College Campuses, and he talks about how modern tolerance is very disingenuous, and he writes, we secular liberals champion tolerance except for conservative evangelical Christians. We want to be inclusive of people who don't look like us, as long as they don't think like us, okay? So, everybody is on the hook everybody's a fundamentalist, including you. Sorry, but you are. The question is not whether or not you are one, it's what kind of fundamentalist you want to be. You know, Rebecca McLaughlin in her, her new book, it's called Confronting Christianity. She's from the UK, runs in the Ivy League circles, very intelligent woman. And in this book, she says, some people say, she writes as a Christian, some people say, that you should respect other people's beliefs, and that is wrong. It's wrong. And if you're offended by the fact that she says it's wrong to respect other people's beliefs, you're making her point, <laughs> right? I mean, who respects the belief system that led Adolf Hitler to exterminate the Jews? Who, who, who respects the system of belief that, 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 that led to slavery? Who respects the system of… No, of course, you don't have to respect… I mean, the whole book of Galatians is written because Paul disrespects the belief system that's leading certain people to be excluded and ostracized, okay? And so she makes a good point, Rebecca McLaughlin does. It's not that you should respect other people's beliefs, it's other people that you should respect, regardless of what their beliefs are. Other people. You know, Peter put it this way. You know, Peter talks about being simultaneously convicted and kind. You, know what, you want to know what it looks like to go out into the world as a Christian around ideas and, and, and conversations about truth and religion and faith and beauty and meaning? Be deeply convicted and compellingly kind all at once. That's a uniqueness that Christianity can offer to the world. 
You know, 1 Peter 3 puts it this way, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. How do you do that? Here's how he answers that question. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in you, and always do so with gentleness and respect, conviction and kindness running together. Okay, so sidebar, it it, it makes really no sense, and I I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time persuading you on this, but it makes no sense to say that all beliefs are equally valid. And especially it makes no sense to say that all belief systems are equally true. And the physicist Neil deGrasse says that uh, one of the good things about science is it is true whether or not you believe in it. Why don't we say the same thing for religion? It's true whether or not you believe in it, the, the, the true truth. You know, the 1992 United States Supreme Court actually codified uh, the belief that, that religion or faith and science are separate realms, where science is a sure thing and faith is whatever you want it to be. The Supreme Court said in 1992, at the heart of true liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence and the meaning of the universe. Math, science, you know, those things are set, but faith, it can be anything you want it to be. Here's why it can't. Christianity says that Jesus rose from the dead. Islam said that Jesus died and then He was taken up into heaven. Judaism says that Jesus died and is still dead. One of those has to be true, and and whichever one is true, the other two have to be false. Okay, that's just one example. To say that that, that, that uni- a universal religious truth cannot exist is to actually make a universal religious truth claim. To say that it is always wrong to say that somebody else's beliefs are wrong is to say that somebody else's beliefs are wrong. It's a self-defeating statement. The solution that Christianity offers here is what… Uh, uh, Washington University law professor John Inazu calls confident pluralism, where as a Christian, he argues, he makes a case for religious freedom, not just for Christians, but for everyone. Level the playing field in terms of everybody's right to, 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 to make the best case they possibly can in the public space for their belief system, for their faith have robust debate and discussion, and let the best ideas win. Are you confident enough in your Christianity to have true pluralism and true religious freedom where everybody gets to say what they think, and where you're called not only to preach but to listen? You know, there's a boldness. You know, Acts chapter 26, King Agrippa says to the Apostle Paul, are you trying to convince me to be a Christian? And Paul says, yeah, you and everyone else, king, you know, while he's tied up in chains, yes, I am trying to convince you. But then he's also so kind and respectful. If you go to Acts chapter 17, he's surrounded with false religion and with false teachers. He's surrounded by them in this public conversation in in the equivalent of the university square And the first thing he says to to a whole group full of people with false religion and bad ideas is, I see that you're very religious. 
It's a statement of respect. It's a, I see that you are seeking truth, that you're seeking ultimate meaning, and that is a good pursuit. And he took them so seriously, and he listened to them so carefully that we find Paul actually quoting their own Epicurean and Stoic secular philosophers and poets from memory as a way to persuade them that Jesus is the true truth. So, he's got both conviction and kindness running together. So, all right, I got to race to the finish line. Here are some reasons why Christians believe that Jesus is the truth, not just a truth, but the truth. Number one, there's a strong case. I'm not going to belabor it. Uh, if you want to download uh, the, the Easter uh, Sunday message here uh, from Christ Prez, you can get all the logical and historical reasons as to why we believe that this stands, uh, you know, this, this so stands the test of history, this so stands the test of, 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 of historic evidence that you've got, you know, every single Ivy League university except for one being founded by Christians who believe in the resurrection, okay? So, so if you want to hear more about that and from the logical perspective, just, just know that there's some extraordinarily intelligent, smart, smart, smart people who believe that Christianity is the true truth. Okay, but I want to camp out on, on, on a couple of things, a couple of other things here from the text. First, Christianity offers a real freedom. You know, Paul says that, 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 that I'm confronting, verse 4, those who want to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ in order to enslave us. So, so here's how you boil it down. Religion, the motive is to control people. The gospel, the motive is to love people that people might be free. Peter is called out. He's confronted by the Apostle Paul here in this text because somehow Peter's religion, whatever religion it was, the circumcision party divergence of Peter, made Peter more rigid, not less. You want to know what one of the fruit of Christianity is? It, it will actually make you less rigid, not more. Less strident in the way that you deal with other people, not more. And this whole notion, you know, all truth claims, all absolute truth claims, that's just going to stifle freedom. We don't really believe that. Again, this is another way that we take faith and we put it in its own category, and we treat faith in ways that we would never treat anything else. You know that, that, that in order to have a robust, rich marriage, you, you, you would never not contain your marriage inside a very protective box. You know, no other partners, no mistresses, etc. Else, the, the whole safety and freedom of marriage is destroyed as soon as you take all restrictions off of it, right? The same thing for health. You, 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 know, you, you set dietary limits on yourself so that you can live longer, you know, you, you, you protect yourself from the elements by putting roofs and doors on your house. There's a fence in your yard. So your kids can run free, but also not run in front of a car. So that your dog can run free and sniff whatever your dog wants to sniff, but not get eaten by a coyote or, or attacked by a bobcat, or if your dog is as wimpy as ours, by a wild turkey or something like that. You know, Tim, Tim Keller... Uh, says a lot of great things in Reason for God around this subject, but one of the things that really sticks out is he says freedom, true freedom, catch this, true freedom is the presence of the right restrictions according to your nature. So if you're a fish, you are never going to be free unless you're constrained to the water. 
don't treat religion differently than you treat the rest of your life. Do the hard work, figure out what's true, and shut your mind to it and live it out. Then lastly, the most admirable, admirable fundamentals in the world. Here's why I'm a Christian. The fundamentals of Christianity foster the highest form of humanity, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you are a gospel-believing, Christ-following fundamentalist, if He is your fundamental, these are the things that are going to characterize you more and more in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Who doesn't want a friend and a neighbor like that? You know, Tim Keller again in Reason for God, he says this. He says, it's common to say that fundamentalism leads to violence, but the real question is which fundamentals will lead the adherents to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they defer? Which set of unavoidably exclusive beliefs will lead us to humble, peace-loving behavior? That is the question. And we needn't look no further than the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul. Before he came to know Jesus Christ, he was violent against those that he regarded as his enemies. And he treated people as his enemies who didn't think he was an enemy. He was bigoted. He was a religious persecutor. He was racist and xenophobic. He was all these things. He was a the worst kind of nationalist. He was all of these things. He meets Jesus, and all of a sudden there's this entire openness that he has to the full human community and this deep compassion that everybody, including people who now want to kill him because he's seen as a traitor, as, as one who left, you know, the, the, the old, you know, faith, the old tried-and-true circumcision party faith, you know, for, for, for Christ and for Christianity… And they're, they're people who are actually actively out to kill the Apostle Paul, and here's what he says about those people after the fundamentals of Christianity had gotten his heart. He says, I would be willing to be damned if I could so that they could be saved. I, I have so much compassion for my brothers who are so blind. See, from, from a violent aggressor to somebody who would, would, would have a forgiving compassionate posture even toward those who are violent and aggressive toward Him. I don't know about you, but if that's a fundamentalist, I want to be one. I hope you do too. Built around the fundamental truth that there is a Savior and a King who is also your Creator who gave up His own freedom entirely, boxed Himself in and died for his enemies while he was in the act of praying for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Will you be a fundamentalist with me? I hope so. Let's pray. As I pray, I just want to give full credit. I got this prayer from John Ortberg, who is a pastor on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. Here's our closing prayer. Lord, may all Jews come to know Jesus Christ. May all Muslims come to know Jesus Christ. May all Hindus come to know Jesus Christ. May all atheists and agnostics come to know Jesus Christ. And may all Christians 
come to know Jesus Christ. Amen.